Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, June 11th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. And on today's episode, I am joined by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer is Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so Peter is out on a work trip. Uh, I'm sure he'll be back later this week to talk about what he's been up to. But in the meantime, let's talk about what we've been doing. Um, Brad, I know you mentioned, I think, on a podcast episode that we did late last week that you were going to be visiting Los Angeles for Ghostbusters Fan Fest, the very first one. So what was that like? Yeah, um, it, it was uh, interesting and fun, but weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it was... Held on the Sony Pictures lot in Culver City, California. Uh, that's where the Ghost Core headquarters are. That's where Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman have their offices, where they are developing seemingly endless Ghostbusters projects that don't ever seem to get made. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, they decided to have this first ever annual, um, well, maybe annual, I don't know, first ever Ghostbusters Fan Fest. Uh, in honor of the 35th anniversary of the original Ghostbusters and the 30th anniversary of Ghostbusters 2. So uh, this was a, it's a, was a relatively small event by comparison to things like other comic conventions or uh, gatherings of that nature because it's simply focused on Ghostbusters. So obviously there were a lot of people in jumpsuits and proton packs, uh, a lot, just Ghostbusters fans in general. But since this was also a uh, Wizard World event, there was like a section where they had some various other um, quasi-celebrities and like sci-fi people there doing autograph signings. Um, so like while there was the majority of the stuff going on was Ghostbusters stuff where they had merchandise and panels and things like that, they also had... Uh, this section where the people like Bai Ling uh, were <laughs> signing autographs. Um, so, so people with absolutely no connection to Ghostbusters whatsoever. 
Right, exactly. And then like and like uh uh Bob Gunton was there who plays the warden in Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> what a I, random Oh man, wow. Yeah, so I just I so that was I was just like this is that's that's weird. And so and then like even though the thing is focused on Ghostbusters the movie, there's a lot of there was like some actual real paranormal stuff there and people who were interested in that kind of thing. So there was like there are some people who are Ghostbusters fans who are also into real paranormal investigations and Dan Aykroyd did this whole panel for like an hour and a half where all he did was talk about like real paranormal experiences and stuff that like his grandfather and father uh, researched and did. And this is something that apparently runs in his family. And Dan Aykroyd, hardcore, believes in ghosts, UFOs, government conspiracies, uh, the real men in black, all this kind of stuff. Legitimately 100% buys into it to the point where when he talks about this stuff, he just says things off the cuff so confidently that like... <laughs> He almost doesn't sound crazy. <laughs> um, uh, Brad, have you seen the Data Accord UFO documentary? No, I have not. But uh, I, I recommend look finding because the entire thing is a talking head of Dan Aykroyd chain smoking or looking at the camera explaining why UFOs exist. I think it is something you need to see. I think oh. that's the, I think that's the series that he talked that they talked about some, that someone asked because there was a show that he did that apparently got shut down and he maintains that it was shut down by the men in black because they were like digging into stuff that was like too true for people to hear about. <laughs> I actually heard about this because I watched this series called BuzzFeed Unsolved, which goes into unexplained cases. And one of the people cited in one of the cases was Dan Aykroyd. And I was like, what? <laughs> what yeah. is happening? So yeah, so the, the, I, I only saw part of that panel because I was busy doing other stuff when I first got there and it started almost as soon as the event opened. But, like, he told a story about um, Al Franken, uh, who used to be on SNL and then was a senator uh, until he resigned, um, apparently stayed uh, a weekend at the bungalow where John Belushi died. And Al Franken supposedly saw, like, a full-on, full-form ghost of John Belushi just sitting at the foot of the bed for, like, a solid two minutes, apparently. Hmm. Um, and this is all stuff that he just believes and buys into. On, on one hand, it's interesting and cool. On the other hand, it's really weird. <laughs> um but yeah, so they had uh, panels with uh, Ivan Reitman and Paul Feig and, and Jason Reitman uh, talking about their experience directing the movies. Anthony Bresnikan, formerly of Entertainment Weekly, hosted the panel, uh, which was a fun discussion. And then they did a 1984 retrospective panel that added uh, Ernie Hudson and William Atherton uh, into the mix, and they just talked about shooting the movie. And then uh, the coolest thing was uh, Jason Reitman and Ivan Reitman showed a series of clips from the that they shot from on the original Ghostbusters, their dailies that haven't been seen by anybody, uh, that were just sitting stored in a mine in Kansas, and they recently got them out because they're using them for something for the new Ghostbusters movie. Jason Reitman wouldn't say what, and so they showed all these like alternate takes and outtakes and things of scenes from the original Ghostbusters that no one's ever seen, and some there's some really great funny stuff in there because they improvised some lines and did like five or six different versions of lines. Uh, and it was really cool to just see this old footage that no one had seen before. Hmm. Man, yeah, Here's my question, Brad. Is there fuel in this tank for – is there fuel in this Ecto-1 for this to be a regular thing? Or do you feel like it's just a one and done? Because it sounds like a lot of fun, but also I can't imagine this happening every year. Yeah, I feel like it's something they could maybe do like every time there's a, a new milestone anniversary for Ghostbusters. Because for for what the tickets cost – um, like the higher end ones where you uh, 
got like exclusive photo opportunities and got to meet some of the cast and stuff like that were cost somewhere like I, I believe in like the fifteen hundred dollar range, if not more. Um, even the most basic ticket for like this uh, all day Saturday events uh, that included certain things was five hundred, and only towards the end of it did they reveal like a hundred twenty five dollar thing. Uh, that got you just to see the panels and uh, you know go around and buy some of the merch that was on display and things like that. So I feel like probably not, especially since a lot of these Ghostbusters fans are getting what they want with this one because a, a lot of people were there to meet uh, you know Ivan and Dan and, and Ernie and get like you know posters and memorabilia signed and stuff like that. And I feel like that can only last for so long. So unless it's cheaper and unless there's something more to get excited about, like new movies or things like that, I feel like it's not something that they can uh, do every single year. See, I feel like this would be a smart plan to like maybe have a studio make a subscription service where like once a month they celebrate a new movie and you maybe pay for a year worth of conventions to go celebrate movies celebrating anniversaries in those months in similar formats. I, I feel like this feels like a test run for something, if you know what I'm saying. That's an interesting idea, actually. Where, like, yeah, a studio kind of like has a year of celebrating certain franchises that you get access to. That's uh, that's an interesting idea for sure. Yeah, because there aren't enough subscription services out there already. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brad, what else did you do when you were here in LA? Um, and so we'll talk about this in much more detail uh, in an episode later this week. But I, due to a series of very fortunate circumstances, just just good timing and great friends. Um, especially uh, our own Peter Serretta, I was able to visit Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, it was completely unexpected. I didn't think I was going to be able to go here for, like, years. Um, but I got in on a reservation, and all, all I'll say right now is, holy shit. Um, <laughs> it's just, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. I can't wait to talk about it later this week. Jacob, you also had some theme park adventures, did you not? Uh, I did, and uh, just to... Uh... I don't know what Brad just said. Peter is currently on a completely separate theme park trip, so we will be dedicating an entire episode of this podcast later this week to uh, Brad on Galaxy's Edge, Peter on his news, and me on my three-day trip to Walt Disney World, and all the various theme park shenanigans I got up to. But more specifically, I was there for work, and I did see an early screening of Toy Story 4 and interview members of the cast and crew, so you'll see those articles on SlashFilm.com. I spoke to the director and the producers. And I spoke to Tony Hale, the actor from Rest of Development and Veep, who voices Forky in the film. And they were really good interviews. Like, sometimes I will have an interview where I'm like, oh, that was adequate. Or interviews where I feel bad to run it because the subject doesn't come off well in them. I've even shelved interviews because I said, I like this movie and it makes someone involved look real bad. And I don't have the heart to run it. That's happened to movies I love. Uh, but Toy Story 4 interviews are genuinely good. I had really good conversations with uh, all, everybody involved, and I wish I had more time. And, and I'll say this much. I didn't get a chance to interview them one-on-one, but they had press conferences with, with all the actors, including Keanu Reeves and Tim Allen and Tom Hanks. And if you ever get a chance to be in a room with Tom Hanks, be in a room with Tom Hanks, one of the most effortlessly entertaining men I have ever seen in person, uh, more so than, uh, his, than Tim Allen, who is trying to do a stand-up routine at all times where uh, t Tom Hanks was just being the most entertaining grandpa you've always wanted. At one point, uh, when people started asking questions that involved spoilers, he pulled out the official Disney-printed talking points that everybody had, but was, probably wasn't supposed to mention, <laughs> and started reading directly from them like in a really monotone voice just to answer questions. <laughs> it made into a bit where every time somebody would ask a question he couldn't answer or ask a question to which he was drawing a blank, he would pull up the paper and just read from it, and it would... <laughs> So, in other words, Tom Hanks is a treasure. 
And so is Keanu Reeves, who was very awkward and uncomfortable and shy. But when Christina Hendricks was not getting asked any questions, started asking questions himself to make sure she got time to speak. So Keanu Reeves and Tom Hanks, gentlemen, scholars, heroes. That is pretty great. And you're going to tell us a little bit about what you thought about Toy Story 4 in the What We've Been Watching section. But before we get to that, let's talk about what we've been reading. Uh, For me, I read the first Ernest Hemingway novel that I've ever read called The Sun Also Rises, which was written, I think, in the mid-1920s. Um, I have not had an experience like this in a long time where I've read a book and just straight up didn't get it. And I, I feel, you know, there, there's like, um, I feel like especially us, you know, people writing for, uh, writing for a living, writing for a pop culture website, we're like constantly pressured to have a take on a thing and like, um, you know, I always um, try to seem as authoritative as possible, uh, you know, based on the, the knowledge that we have of certain properties and stuff like that, which all, you know, is great and informs the writing and makes sense. This was one of the first times in a long, long time where I just I just don't have a take because I just straight up don't understand this book. <laughs> like, I, I don't really get it. I, I think uh, most of the any sort of thematic resonance or layering or any of that stuff just sort of like went over my head. And it feels like uh, freeing in a weird way to just um, step back and say like, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have a take on this book because I, um, I just don't get it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious with you guys. Has anybody else here read the sun also rises? Any, does anybody have any sort of experience with this book at all? It's one of my favorite books of all time. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, I'm very curious about this because I just finished the book and I haven't actually had time to even read the Wikipedia page for it, like let alone get into any other like um, scholarly or academic writing about uh, what it's trying to say or, or what Hemingway was, was doing at this time. Because I, I feel like a lot of the um, – a lot of the reason that I didn't connect with it was because I – didn't do any research and I'm not like, uh, I wasn't prepared, uh, historically about like the context of the time and which he was writing this book. And, and the story is basically set in Paris, I think in the 1920s. And it's about these people who just like seem to not work at all and just drink themselves into oblivion all day. And then they go to Spain to watch some bullfights. And that's like a very, um, truncated version of the story. But uh, Jacob, what what am I missing here? What why is this book one of your favorites? Uh, the historical context I think is very very important, and why I think um, why when it's taught in schools and it's taught in schools a lot, it should be taught as much about the history of the time period as much as about Hemingway's uh, prose, which I think is spectacular. But um, I'm always interested in what's called the Lost Generation, which is the generation immediately following World War One, where veterans came home at a time before PTSD existed from a war. It was fought for nebulous reasons, and unlike World War II, where there was a narrative of good versus evil, World War I was just a political dick-measuring contest that resulted in millions upon millions of people died, mutilated, families destroyed, um, countryside ravaged, and people came home feeling nihilist, they came home with wounds, and even though it's never explicitly stated, the main character in Sun Also Rises has come home um, with his uh, genitals damaged to the point where he can't have sex anymore, the woman he loves, he, he can't um, be with her anymore. So these people who are they're not drinking because they're, you know, because they don't want to. They're drinking because they have. They're from a generation of people whose lives were destroyed, and now they uh, go from place to place trying to find meaning in a, in a world where they saw, where they saw the world end. They saw the war to end all wars, you know, at the time. And it's about the melancholy of the futility of your own existence, of no, of not being able to recover physically or emotionally or mentally from uh, where you were and where you've been. 
Well, that's a uh, that's probably about as a good of a of a defense of this book as you'll find. So uh, I am looking forward in you know to uh, diving in a little bit further and and trying to read some of the stuff about it and and familiarizing myself more with that time period. And um, I, I think I just picked maybe the wrong entry point for Hemingway for me personally. But I am looking forward to reading some of his other stuff because I was sort of struck by uh, his prose, as you mentioned, which is sort of unlike any other um, author that I've read, at least in a long, long time. So, uh, Jacob, what have you been reading? Uh, at Disney, I picked up a copy of The Haunted Mansion, Imagineering a Disney Classic by Jason Sorrell. And this is a book that, as the title implies, it's all about the making of the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, the version of Disney World, the version of Disneyland Paris, and even uh, Mystic Manor at uh, at Hong Kong Disneyland, which is not a haunted house because of uh, cultural reasons. Uh, ghosts in China are seen as you know something far more serious. You can't really make fun of that or have a good time with that. So that's a very, very different attraction without ghosts, even though it's spiritually uh, similar. And if you're a fan of theme park attractions or the making of stories or concept art behind the scenes or even the unseen storytelling and lore of the Haunted Mansions and how they're all connected and the characters and their names, just all the little details that you can either choose to dig as deep into you want to as we want to or just ignore, it's all there. And man, to give you an idea of uh, this, is my, this is my favorite ride of all time. I'll talk about this more detail in a future podcast. But like I was talking to the cashier at Memento Mori, which is the Haunted Mansion gift shop. And she's talking about talking about the book and about how it's re- she's like she's read it cover to cover because it allows her to explain every item in the shop, tell tell uh, customers about all the ghosts, what their names are, their relationship to each other, how the Disneyland Disney World houses are connected, and why they share some ghosts and don't share others. And I mean, I'm it's a really really cool book, and and have and it made me appreciate a ride I already loved. That is awesome. All right, so let's get into what we've been watching. Um, Brad, you watched the first episode of the first season of Big Little Lies, and Jacob and I watched the premiere of season two. But before we get to season two, let's let's go back to season one. Brad, what did you think about the first episode? Yeah, so my girlfriend uh, had been wanting to watch the show because some of her friends uh, powered through the first season before the second season started this past weekend. Uh, and so she wanted to watch to catch up. Unfortunately, my time and schedule didn't allow for me to watch it entirely with her. But I did get a chance to watch the first episode with her from a distance, at least. Um, and I I really liked it. I'm, I'm interested to watch the rest of the series when I get some time. Because one thing I didn't realize is that the, uh, the mystery of who um, gets killed in the series is something that isn't revealed at the, at the end of the first episode. The first episode is called Somebody's, Somebody's Dead. And I I was under the impression that the series let everybody know, like, who was dead and that the first season was kind of about them trying to keep it secret. But at least for from the first episode um, and seemingly into the second episode, that they're not giving away that mystery just yet. And I, I assume unfold throughout the rest of the season. Is that accurate? Um, I guess it's not really spoilery to to lay out the uh, the structure of the first season. So I'll ju- I'll just say that um, it, you really don't find out who dies until the last episode of the season. I mean, there are only seven episodes in the first season, so it's not like it's a, a huge, um, you know, sprawling series or anything like that. But the the structure is pretty interesting because there's a lot of like flashbacks and and flash forwards in time and um, you know uh, interrogation scenes and and things like that that are sort of layered out uh, throughout the first season. So um, yeah, I didn't realize that the show's format was like that. So I'm very 
uh, intrigued about the mystery now. Yeah, it's interesting because the way that you sort of envisioned uh, or your perception of what the first season was going to be is sort of like what the second season is, as far as I know. So, Jacob, what did you think about the uh, the season two premiere that just aired this past Sunday? Uh, I was very impressed, and I will keep it spoiler light uh, for Brad and for listeners, but it picks up a few months after season one with, char- with characters who did not uh, die in the finale of season one. <laughs> Uh, trying to keep their big little lies from spreading or getting worse or getting into uh, stickier situations. And Meryl Streep has joined the cast as somebody who's butting her nose into things. And uh, I'm already very uh, taken with her character, who is uh, very unstable uh, and not in a way I was expecting. She's very unnerving. And it, it, when the, the way she's connected to the characters and who she's, who she's directly connected to by blood... Um, allows that character to make a lot more sense. And you understand that relationship immediately. And uh, Andrea Arnold takes over the directing of the season, but it feels very much uh, of, the, of the same season, of the, of the same as the first season, I mean. And it's a lot of setup. It's a lot of here's where we are now, here's where we're going, here's the new wrinkles. But I was glad to be back with these uh, selfish, wonderful characters again. But, uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes. How about you, Ben? Yeah, same. Hard same. I, I loved being back in this world and, and seeing these characters again. I think um, even the smaller characters, you know, people like Adam Scott, who are just sort of on the periphery of this, playing like one of the husbands to one of the characters. Um, I really enjoy just seeing, you know, him and, and the uh, ex-husband of... Um, of Madeline, uh, that, that character just sort of like, you know, butting heads and, you know, characters that just, that don't get that much screen time. I just feel like this world is, um, is so fascinating to live in. And it's, it's very much a like rich white people show with their, you know, soapy problems and all that. But I, I think the, um, excuse me, the construction of the world and the, uh, visual style and the editing and like the, especially the editing, you know, those, those quick flashes that Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed the first season, um, is so fond of. And he actually, I think, had an editing credit on the first episode of season two, even though... Eight uh, credit editors. Wow. Yeah, geez, yeah. that's a lot. So um, I don't know what that means in terms of like... Uh, too many cooks in the kitchen or something, but you don't feel that at all when you're watching the show. It really does feel like a, a really um, uh, seamless extension of season one so far anyway. So uh, I also am very much looking forward to diving into the uh, the rest of the season. I was I was just telling my wife like yesterday, like we just watched the episode and I was just like, man, I really want there to be more episodes of Big Little Lies out so we can just like continue on with the story. So uh, it's a good sign for me anyway. So um, HT and Brad, both of you had a chance to watch Rocket Man. Uh, HT, what did you think about that one? I enjoyed it. I actually think it's mislabeled as a biopic because to me it felt much more along the lines of juke, jukebox musical. And I wish that it had leaned more into those elements. Uh, basically, um, I remember you guys talking a little bit about, about this before in which it kind of hits all the the biopic hallmarks of going through Elton John's childhood and like going up through his uh, rise and his career and how he falls to drugs and drinking and has to go to rehab and those parts while I feel like necessary in telling the story of his life I wish that they hadn't given so much um, weight to them as much as the uh, the really fun and really spectacularly filmed uh, musical sequences that I think set this part this film apart from uh, films like Bohemian Rhapsody and make it leagued beyond Bohemian Rhapsody for sure. Um, Taron Egerton is incredibly charming and great in this role. He is a bit too good looking to play Elton John, which is um, something my mom had first said, actually, because she's a big Elton John fan. And uh, she, when he was cast, she's like, he's too good looking for Elton John. And because uh, at, at several points in the film, they kind of refer to him as like 
fat and looking like a pig. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is not at all the case. <laughs> but he's fantastic in the role. And um, I absolutely love when he gets to shine as kind of a musical star uh, and kind of do these sequences, especially in fil- in sequences that were duets with his younger self. I really liked that. And I thought that was very poetic um, and kind of more what they should have done to... Um, you know, communicate how, like, his regrets and his career and how he came from A to B, for example. Hmm. Um, And one of my favorite sequences uh, was the Honky Cat sequence, actually, uh, which is, I think, much more effective as that montage of his rock star lifestyle than the montage that took place just, like, five minutes earlier, literally. (laughs) So I I liked it. I did, like, I had my issues with it. I like, you know, the, the typical trappings of that biopic, genre but i enjoyed what it did with it and i really liked um oh what's the director's name again i'm blanking uh, dexter it's fletcher yeah oh dexter fletcher doesn't start with an r <laughs> dexter fletcher's direction um and i thought that was really great yeah he directed uh taron edgerton in this little movie called eddie the eagle a couple years ago that i really enjoyed too so if you if you haven't seen that one i would encourage anybody out there to to check that out it's a nice little charming movie with uh, another great taron edgerton performance um brad what did you think about rocket man yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, I I definitely uh, agree with HT about how the the kind of cliche biopic tropes take take away from it a little bit and make it feel a little bit hokey and cheesy, and and it shines the most when it really uh, gets a little bit wild with the style and the musical sequences, and it turns into that fantasy you know musical telling of Elton John's story as the the trailers you know hinted at. Um, it's this. I feel like. The songs don't always entirely, I feel like, make make sense as far as, like, telling Elton John's story. It's some, some of the times they seem a little bit forced. Um, like, their sound and vibe fits the scene of, like, what's happening and, like, what's uh, going on in Elton John's mind and life and that kind of thing. But sometimes it feels like Elton John's songs aren't always uh, evocative of his own life necessarily. But the, the way they're presented and the way the sequences play out visually... Uh, kind of help help tie them in a little bit better, um, but yeah, T- Taron Edgerton is is fantastic as as Elton John. Uh, even though he doesn't sound exactly like Elton John's you know, unique voice, he does a fantastic job with with the pipes that he has. Um, I like seeing Jamie Bell in a role like this. It was very jarring uh, seeing Richard Madden be such a colossal prick. Um, <laughs> same with same with Bryce Dallas Howard being such such a cold you know mother figure for for Elton John as well. Um, but yeah, this is, I didn't know a lot about Elton John's, uh, life story. And it was, um, in that way it was enlightening because I didn't know he had such a hard time, uh, with his parents and it really made, you know, made me feel for him. And this is, it's, it's just a biopic that's worthy of somebody who is as outlandish and flamboyant as, as Elton John. It's exactly, you know, the way he you know would have wanted to tell, uh, his story. So it's, I had a, um, uh, a good time with it. Cool. Uh, yeah, for me, I was back in Florida visiting some family, and um, I, w- uh, my wife and I, with my parents, we played the board game Clue, and then the same night, right after that uh, board game was over, we watched the movie version from 1985. And I've seen this movie a bunch of times, um, but it, it had been a little while, and man, this movie is so much fun. I don't know if you guys have seen this recently, but uh, this film <laughs> is so great. Um, Tim Curry, especially, he sort of like leads the charge as Wadsworth the butler. Um, the movie, for those of 
you who haven't seen it is on Amazon Prime Video right now. So if you have a, if you haven't seen it, please, please, please seek this out because it's like one of the best, uh, you know, sort of whodunit ensemble mystery thriller kind of movies that uh, that exists out there, even though it's a comedy and um, it's definitely playing on the trappings of the Agatha Christie style uh, setups and stuff. That, but I think, you know, in terms of um, movies that have been adapted from uh, let's say ridiculous property, ridiculous source material. I think this is certainly, um, if not at the very, very top of the list, definitely up in the you know it's top five or something like that. Oh, so so it's so good, Ben. I mean, Tim Curry's best performance, right? It has to be. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen his entire filmography, so I'm not like a hundred percent sure about that. Like, I, I know he plays uh, what is it, the devil in some Ridley Scott movie or something like that. Oh. I, well, legend. <laughs> legend, yes. So I haven't seen that one, and, and I, I feel like Tim Curry would be especially well-suited with his uh, you know, dramatic persona to um, take on such a, a larger-than-life role. But, um, man, he is so freaking good in Clue, and the, the whole cast is great, and the the production design and everything. I mean, it, it's like, and the script especially, you know, this is one of those movies that, like, I'll talk about uh, Toy Story in just a second, but to me, the script just feels perfect, like heightened all the way through in the best way where everything feels natural and one thing rolls right into the next and no- nothing ever feels forced. Um, a lot of modern movies, when I'm watching them, I'm just like, God, it really just feels like you're checking boxes here, you know, jumping from beat to beat or like hitting things because they're required. But um, there's something about watching a movie with a great script that just pulls you straight into it and you never get any of those feelings at all. And that's that's how Clue operates for me. So um, Jonathan Lynn directed this. This is his directorial debut, which I had no idea about. He also directed uh, My Cousin Vinny. So props to him for that. And then I this time noticed something that I've never noticed before, which is that Deborah Hill produced this movie. And she was like the um, uh, co-writer and producer of a lot of um, movies involving um, or that were directed by John Carpenter. So um, I thought it was a cool connection because uh, it seems like something that that I, I don't know. I just never noticed that before. So um, anyway, that that's one of the things that I was watching. And the other two uh, are the first two Toy Story movies. I'm planning to watch a Toy Story 3 tonight because my screening for Toy Story 4 is tomorrow night. So I'm just doing like one Toy Story movie a night leading up to that. And uh, like I mentioned, I mean, the script for the first Toy Story is just um, A plus all the way across the board. Another thing, talking about things that I, I never mentioned before, uh, or never uh, noticed before, rather, was that um, I knew that Joss Whedon was one of the, the writers of the original Toy Story, but I didn't remember or maybe never knew before that Joel Cohen was also one of the writers for that first film. Um, and that's another movie that has a lot of writers on it, but it, it just feels completely effortless and uh, just it's a perfect movie. I, I'm convinced. Uh, I've seen it, you know, innumerable times, but um, God, that movie is so good. And then Toy Story 2 is a movie that I've only seen maybe once before this, maybe twice. Uh, not very many times at all. Toy Story 1, I've seen, I don't know, 20 times or something. Um, but I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the second one. I think it has a reputation as the worst of the bunch. And if that's the worst of entry in your franchise, then um, you're doing pretty, pretty good. So uh, anyway, yeah, I, I think um, for anybody who's uh, maybe considering doing a rewatch of the whole franchise leading up to Toy Story 4, um, and and if anybody's dreading Toy Story 2 for some reason, I would... Uh, I would temper that dread because I don't think it's it's deserved. I think the movie's sort of um, I don't know. It's gotten this reputation as the worst of the of the bunch, but I think that's just by default because the other ones are so great. So I've um, never heard that before, but you're the first person I've ever heard say Toy Story two has a reputation like this. I've always loved it. Really interesting. Okay, yeah. maybe I, there are maybe... some people who even say that Toy Story two is the best. I don't think it's as popular an opinion as saying like Toy Story one or three. 
are the best, but I, yeah, I mean, I could see like that it's the list less popular of the bunch, but I don't, I wouldn't say it's like the worst of the bunch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be clear, I've never heard anybody like really go out of their way to hate on it. I think it's just like by default that the other two, you know, the other two are praised so much, and I, I just haven't heard very much praise for Toy Story 2. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if anybody else has seen either of these two movies uh, recently. Anybody? No, probably not. Okay. not <laughs> All right, so let's transition in, uh, into Jacob's discussion then of uh, Toy Story 4. What did you think about this one? Because I think a lot of us have sort of been, um, I don't know, like uh, a little hesitant about this, after, especially after the ending of Toy Story 3, where it seemed to leave the franchise off so perfectly. Yeah, that was my big thing going in, was that Toy Story 3 felt like a definitive ending. It felt like, what else is there to say? Is there everything that came with these characters? There's nothing else fresh you can wring out of them. It turns out uh, we were all completely wrong because Toy Story 4 is fantastic. And I don't want to do a ranking or anything. I don't want to do a direct comparison. It's too fresh in my mind. Looking forward to seeing it again. But I was bowled over by how much I liked it. And not just by being pleasantly surprised by it, but like it being a legitimately great Toy Story movie, which means it stands head and shoulders with the other three. And I don't want to say too much because there's still a review embargo, but social embargoes are up so I can at least comment on it. And... Like the best Toy Story movies, it's this really great blend of adventure and comedy and really profound meaning. And as you may know from the trailers, the basic premise is that while on a road trip with his new owner, uh, Bonnie, Woody, uh, Woody Cowboy, once again voiced by Tom Hanks, uh, meets up with Bo Peep, who uh, his old uh, love interest from the first two films who vanished uh, uh, before the events of Toy Story 3. And all kind, it's not, it never gets like, as emotionally brutal and as intense as Toy Story 3 did, uh, but it has this very bittersweet, melancholic air to it, uh, because in the opening act, we learn that Woody's not Bonnie's favorite toy. He doesn't get picked to be played with, and then he meets Bo Peep, who's living her best life without an owner, like out and about. And the big question of Toy Story 4 is, if you've, served, if, if you've lived your entire life serving others and making other people happy, and, you've, and, you, and your, your existence has been predicated on making sure everyone around you was living their best life, when are you allowed to live your best life? When are you allowed to choose to be happy for yourself? And that resonated very strongly with me. And characters make tough choices. Lots of tears are shed. And I was really, really pleased by this movie. Uh, Keanu Reeves is hilarious uh, as like Duke Kaboom, a Canadian stuntman action figure. Uh, Key and Peele are so, so funny as uh, two psychopathic carnival toys. <laughs> and... Uh, Tony Hale is Forky, this uh, handmade toy who does not know why he exists or why he's a toy when he's just a bunch of uh, trash held together. Works so much better in the film than he does in the trailers. And interestingly, this movie's about Woody, Bo Peep, and the new characters. I mean, the rest of the supporting cast are really, really, really off the sidelines, including Buzz. And for a movie that really chooses to focus in on Woody and Bo Peep and these new characters, I was impressed by how immediately I was drawn to the new characters and how warm relationship between Bo and Woody was and how satisfying it was to see these two characters together again and how they've grown and changed and how the film acknowledges a passage of time. And I, I really want you guys to see this. I think it's a really special movie. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, especially after, yeah, you're not the only one to, to praise it uh, very highly. So I'm, I'm definitely um, anticipating this way more now than I was before. And, and uh, yeah. So uh, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Oh, I watched... Uh, the last of Chernobyl, the last episode, and I watched it after last time we did a water cooler. And I just want to mention that this show is still the, probably the best thing I've seen this year. In the final episode, without spoiling anything, one third of the hour is one character explaining 
to a courtroom how a nuclear reactor works, and I've never been more riveted <laughs> by by exposition. And I was I think that if you want to learn how to make explaining things to an audience exciting, watch Chernobyl. And Chris, you haven't said much this podcast. Is the last episode of Chernobyl with Jared Harris's twenty minute long nuclear reactor monologue as good as I'm saying it is? Oh yeah. The the whole the whole series in general it was shockingly good. I, I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. Although it, it does get very hard to watch at times, especially the second to last episode. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a masterclass in both writing and acting because you know that the writing is really good, but it wouldn't work as well without the performances, particularly Jared Harris, who's really good at nailing that sort of I'm going to stand up and give a speech thing without it sounding you know boring or, or trite. It, it's it's a great performance. Man, yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to carving out what is it five hours or something to to watch this because it's only five episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I'm. I'm looking for. I'm. I'm sort of dreading it because of the, <laughs> because of the depressing angle of it. But you guys have talked about it so much and and in such high regard that um I'm definitely adding this. I mean, it's it's like at the top of my watch list now. So, uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? I'm gonna mention this for like the fifth week in a row, and that is the perfection. I watched again this time with my wife, and uh, she loved the hell out of it. We she was like screaming and cheering. And turned to me and saying, what the hell is this movie? At least five times. It really and... is that kind of movie. <laughs> so I'm saying, if you haven't seen Perfection yet, I still I still want to do a spoiler chat about it at some point. Uh, but yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm, I, I, get, I get giddy when people get around to seeing the Perfection. So that that's still one of my favorite films of the year. Awesome. And that is on Netflix right now. Um, Brad, what have you been checking out? Um, I watched a few things, and uh, mostly because of my time spent up in the air on a plane. Uh, I watched Juliet Naked on my flight to Los Angeles. Uh, this was a Sundance movie back in 2018 that stars Chris O'Dowd and Rose Byrne and Ethan Hawke. Um, and it's uh, very—it's almost like before Sunrise meets Almost Famous, in a way. Um Chris O'Dowd plays this guy who is super obsessed with this uh, folk style uh, indie singer um, named uh, Tucker Crow. And Rose Byrne is his wife who is kind of feels like stuck in her life and feels like their relationship is a little bit stale. And all of a sudden this like uh, demo tape from one of uh, one of Tucker Crow's like most uh, beloved albums uh, ends up on uh, Chris O'Dowd's doorstep because he runs this huge Tucker Crow, not huge, but this Tucker Crow uh, fan site that a lot of people are always in the forums and talking about his music because uh, the, the musician has been out of the spotlight for so long. And uh, Rose Byrne's character hears it first, and she doesn't really get it or like it, and she <laughs> writes a review on his website about why she doesn't like it. And Tucker Crow sees it and reaches out to her, and they start emailing. And then, and the movie kind of just goes goes from there as they strike up uh, this relationship with with each other and talk. And it's uh, it's very charming and funny. Uh, it made me realize that both Ethan Hawke and Rose Byrne, um, I feel like, are sorely underrated in how great they are in their own respective ways. Um, well, I think a lot of people know Ethan Hawke is a great actor, but I feel like no one ever thinks of him as being like one of the the greatest actors. And I feel like it's just because he's so seamlessly blends into every role that he takes without taking roles that are that you know are extremely popular or that that everybody rants and raves about but he's always consistently 
great. Even in the movies that he's in that aren't very good, he's always fantastic in them. And Rose Byrne is somebody who she can do everything from, you know, period drama to raunchy comedy. Uh, and I feel like she doesn't get nearly enough uh, respect and admiration as, as she deserves. Um, and this movie is definitely w w worth watching. It is um, it's it's really is a, an indie gem. I wish I had seen it at Sundance when it premiered in 2018. Um, but it's uh, definitely w worth seeking out, I think. HC, I, I feel you like bursting at the seams wanting to praise Ethan Hawke here from the sidelines. <laughs> Am I right about that? <laughs> I mean, yes. Um, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, I actually, I saw this film when it came in theaters last year and I loved it too. It's, it's so incredibly charming and disarmingly so. It's something that kind of presents itself as a more typical rom-com, but is actually a real sweet uh, sort of portrait of this small town English life. And it's actually based off of a uh, novel by Nick Hornby of the same name. Nick Hornby is the same writer who wrote uh, High Fidelity, About a Boy, Fever Pitch. And he has that kind of same touch with um, just being able to bring like this small town British life to life. And I really like that Julia Naked does that. But having, you know, a great cast as well. I agree with everything that Brad said about Ethan Hawke and, and Rose Byrne. I, I also think it's really funny that this is the the um the role that like kind of turned that switch to you for Ethan Hawke when he was getting so much praise about uh, First Reformed last year. <laughs> but I agree because he's just so charming in this role and he, um, as the washed up rocker, I feel like this role too is a little bit meta in a way. It kind of is a kind a sweet, um, and funny, uh, representation of his kind of his own life in a way. So that is Juliet Naked. Uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? Uh, also on the plane, I uh, watched Gifted, which is a movie with Chris Evans uh, and young McKenna Grace. And it's kind of your typical child prodigy, uh, coming-of-age struggle um, kind, of, kind of movie. Like you've, We've seen this movie several times before where there's a kid who's extremely smart and somebody in their family wants them to like realize their greatness and uh, you know, do all these things, but then somebody else just wants them to be a kid and they fight over custody and da 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 da. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for those movies, even, even when they're a little bit cheesy. And this one uh, definitely borders on that. But I really wanted to see this movie simply because McKenna Grace is the um, one of the leads in the new Ghostbusters. And she, while she has some bit parts in Captain Marvel as young Carol Danvers and also in I, Tanya as young Tanya Harding, uh, this was is basically a lead role for her. And she she's a fantastic young actress um, at, at, at such a young age. You can just she's very uh, emotive and she she feels older than she is. Like she feels like she has like an old soul like residing in her the way she gets this performance across. Um, and yeah, I'm very interested to see what she brings to Ghostbusters because of this movie. Um, it, it was also interesting to see a different side of Chris Evans after seeing him mostly do Captain America for for the longest time. Um, but yeah, and I, I'm always down for a movie that has Jenny Slate in it because she, she's wonderful and deserves more. But yeah, this, this movie was, it was charming enough, uh, not anything groundbreaking, pre-formulaic and predictable. Um, but it was, it was a good, good one to watch on the plane. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. I remember seeing this and thinking like, oh, that was a very fine movie. It was just, you know, it was nice. Um, yeah. it's interesting about, that, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh. All right. I just wanted to say, if you want to check out more work from McKenna Grace, she's also in Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, and she's very good in that series, too. Oh, fair enough. Uh, I was just going to say that it's it's interesting that you point out uh, McKenna Grace there, because she really does, does strike me as somebody who is not like the, um, 
you know, the sort of like uh, moppet headed like Disney Channel star that so many kid actors seem like, even if they didn't originate or, you know, come from the the, uh, the Disney Channel machine. Um, so many kid actors just have that like, you know, playing to the cheap seats aspect of their performances. And she, I, I mean, even years after seeing Gifted, I, I still remember um, McKenna Grace's performance in that movie as just being like um, something that, that seemed uh, antithetical to that. So um, what else have you been watching, Brad? There's one more thing, right? Yeah, and I, uh, I took the time to rewatch the Lego movie, too, uh, on a plane because I, I had a limited window of how much time I had to watch a movie, and that one kind of fit in there. And I had been wanting to revisit it since it recently came out on home video. And I don't understand why a lot of people were were mostly like saying that this... Well, like they were kind of down on this movie. And I feel like this movie is every bit as good as the original Lego movie. And some of the shine sure has worn off because the concept isn't quite as original. But I feel like it does such a good job of letting the characters grow through their the humans that are that are controlling them. And it has this interesting uh, approach to the idea of like, like siblings and having an older sibling growing up a little bit and becoming a little bit of a jerk and clashing with their younger sibling and bringing it to life in this, you know, odd oddball Lego animated world with a lot of really funny, you know, uh, meta references and uh, things that are lie outside of the Lego universe and just it's full of of all the same fast paced humor and ingenuity and cleverness that was in the original one. And I just, I, I think that it's fantastic. And I, I wish that people weren't uh, as, as harsh on it as they were when it, when it came around. Man, I really wanted to watch this because I, I missed this in theaters and I was planning on watching this movie on a plane. Like I was like, thinking about okay what movies from the past couple years have i missed and that one like floated to the top of the list and i was like all right when i fly back to florida i'm gonna watch this on a plane but i took southwest and they didn't have any uh video screens on the back of any of the flights that i took there or back so i was i was bummed to miss this but um that would have been interesting both of us seeing that at the same time but uh that is the lego movie 2 the second part uh chris you have been mostly silent on this uh, podcast episode but I, i have a feeling that you're gonna have some interesting things to say about the movie that you watched uh, yeah, so I finally watched Demon Wind. Demon Wind is a film that Jacob first told us all about. It uh, feels like a very long time ago. And then my my now Scream This co-writer, Matt Donato, kind of like adopted it as his go-to movie to talk about. It's one of those horror movies that apparently is is so bad it's good. And I had sort of re- resisted watching it just because of all the hype. Because I was like, there's no way this can live up to the hype of being as like goofy and bonkers as people keep saying it is. So I, I was up late over the weekend and I said, you know what? I'm I'm finally going to watch demon wind. So I put it on and like the first 10 or 15 minutes, it seemed really normal. And I was like, what the hell is everyone talking about? Like, yeah, it's, it's low budget, but it didn't seem any goofier than other movies I had seen. And then uh, a car pulls up and in the car is a Kung Fu magician. And uh, <laughs> from then on, I was like, oh, all right, now I get what people are talking about. Cause he, he, he literally comes out of nowhere and he, there's a girl standing by the side of the road and he, he's in a convertible and he stands up and we've never met this character before. We have no idea who he is. He just pulls into frame in a car and he says, a princess should always have flowers. And then he magically produces flowers out of nowhere and hands them to this girl. And I was like, what is happening? What? Like, who is this guy? Why is he suddenly in the scene? 
And then he gets out of the car and the girl's new boyfriend tries to start a fight with him. And this magician kicks like a can of soda into the air and it stays up in the air for, it feels like 20 minutes. And then the can comes down and then he kicks it into the guy's face. And it's so badly done. I was like, this is amazing. I, I hope this never ends. And uh, so, yeah, I stuck with it. Um, I do think after a while it gets a little uh, tedious, you know, it starts like uh, grinding its wheels and it, 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 no, no amount of craziness can keep it from, getting a little boring, but there is a very solid period where things are just really ridiculous. And it's, it's the best kind of so bad. It's good movie. Um, because it's, it's really trying. Like I've, I have this real problem with modern day. So bad. It's good movies. Like, you know, the Sharknado films like that, because those are movies where people are deliberately trying to make a bad movie. And that, I feel like that's cheating. The best movies that are just awful, but watchable are films like this where the, the people making them are really trying to make like a good movie they're they're doing everything they can but they're so inept they can't make it work and that to me is is the sign of a really really so bad it's good movie and that's what this is so this is a movie's called demon wind it actually came out in 1990 originally but i think like only resurfaced uh for you know a couple years ago right is that is that Right, it sort of. Yeah, like... it, I mean, it, it never got a, like a theatrical release. It was popular on, uh, you know, VHS for a while, but recently it's it sort of gotten a new cult following all over again, and it's it's on Shutter right now, streaming. So this movie was directed by Charles Philip Moore. Chris, have you looked at his filmography? This was uh, Demon Wind was his directorial debut, and I think he's made four movies total. Have you seen any of his other films? Are you are you interested in that? Based on your experience with Demon Wind, do you feel like anything else that he does could possibly live up to that the sort of weird bar that he set there? I'm curious, but a part of me also just wants to stop with Demon Wind and be like, all right, that's it. Yes. And like pretend like he died after he finished making it. Like he just (laughs) passed away and his soul went up to heaven. Like it's it's like Jesus at the end of the crucifixion. Like it's accomplished and he 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 goes into the sky. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's probably the first time that the director of Demon Wind was ever directly compared to Jesus Christ. So that's uh, that's that's something to be proud of for Slash Film Daily. Um, uh, HC, what have you been watching? I don't know how I can follow up with um, follow up <laughs> after that, um, but I have been watching *Ran*, which is uh, the Akira Kurosawa film. Uh, it's now streaming on Criterion Channel, so um, just recently got added. If you have the chance to see it, uh, please do because it is fantastic. I mean, I feel like there's not enough words to actually describe how amazing and how stupendous and how uh, just instrumental this film is i will say i haven't seen a lot of akira kurosawa films the only other film i've seen of his is seven samurai and that is uh you know one of his classics it's a black and white film and i when i saw it i realized why kurosawa is just upheld as one of the greatest directors of all time and um so ran i was amazed to see that uh you know this isn't his first color film but i feel like it's one of his films just really, really make use of that color in stunning visceral um, fashion. The reds and the um, of the blood and of the signias of everything is just so stunning. Um, so Ran is uh, a 1985 
period drama uh, that is Akira Kurosawa's retelling of King Lear by uh, Shakespeare. Um, it tells the story of an aging warlord who decides to abdicate and um, split his uh, his lands, his dominions, among his three sons. But after uh, his first eldest two sons uh, lay, or, lay him down, lay him uh, with flattery and uh, kind words, his third and youngest son and his favorite uh, says that his dream of a unified kingdom between his three sons is a, um, a foolish one and um, that the three of them will um, inevitably turn to infighting just as he did when he rose to power. So um, the warlord is very offended by this and ends up banishing that youngest son. Um, and of course, the son's words end up coming to to fruition. Um yeah, I, I, uh, I feel like um, this is a two-hour and forty-minute film, and uh, it's just for worth every minute of that film. Um, I am often hesitant with any uh, three-hour films, even with a, a master director like Akira Kurosawa. But this was worth every epic minute. It's definitely an epic. It's um, a Kur- Kurosawa um, makes use of a lot of wide shots and um, doesn't tend to linger too much on close-ups or on any of the characters apart from the select few main characters and Lady Kaede, who uh, is just an amazing, one of an all-time, honestly, female villain. She is fantastic, um, as played by... Ooh, uh, Mieko Harada. She's just incredibly chilling. And then as she goes on um, a war path against the family, it's just um, it's just uh, fantastic to watch. So um, yeah, I I feel like anything I say won't do justice to this film. It's a classic for a reason. And uh, please check it out on Criterion Channel if you can. Well, you've convinced HT, me. Uh, uh, <laughs> I would recommend two movies for HT. Uh, if you like this, go watch uh, Kagamusha, the film he made mm-hmm. before this, mm-hmm. which... Um, he said was his warm-up. He, he made Kagamusha to see if he had the ability to make Ron. Um, so it's very interesting to see that as his, as his test run. It's another masterpiece, but he literally made it just to see if he would have the capacity to make another film. So they make a really interesting uh, double feature. And also okay. uh, Throne of Blood from the 60s, I, I believe, uh, black and white. And it's his uh, samurai adaptation of Macbeth. So it, it, it's another one of his uh, uh, you know, feudal Japan uh, Shakespeare adaptations. So those three form a, a really, really good trilogy of uh, samurai Shakespeare epics. I think you will really enjoy. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to check those out now. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking those recommendations to heart as well. Because Kurosawa is like one of the big blind spots for me. I've only seen Rashomon and Throne of Blood of his filmography so far. And I know that a bunch of his stuff is on Criterion Channel right now. So um, that movie is called Ran, and that is also on Criterion Channel. So what else have you been watching, HT? I have been watching a, another Japanese film. It's a bit more modern. It's an anime film called A Silent Voice. So this is a film, actually, I would recommend to you, Ben, because I know you really liked Your Name. Mm-hmm. And uh, this film is very much in the vein of Your Name in that it's uh, kind of leans into that human connection. Uh, it doesn't have quite as much of the cerebral metaphysical parts of Your Name, but it's uh, a very beautifully felt, beautifully made film. So A Silent Voice is uh, directed by Naoko Yamada and written by Reiko Yoshida, two uh, women, which is actually very rare in um, anime filmmaking, and that's very cool. And uh, it follows a former high school, a former bully who um, 
runs into the the girl that as an elementary schooler he had bullied relentlessly um and um he uh, ends up befriending her as sort of um out of a point of trying to uh, redeem himself in a way uh there's a little bit more to this basically this girl is deaf and she had started she had transferred to their school their elementary school and um he was uh basically very just wary of this girl and ended up teasing her and bringing a lot of his other friends in but when he was caught bullying her he ended up asked, tell, trying to tell on his friends as well and in the process got ostracized by the rest of his friend group and spent the next 5 years essentially being bullied himself and um it's a it's a tearjerker first and foremost about 15 minutes in i was on the edge of tears and i remained on that edge for the rest of the hour and a half of this film but it is just so beautiful and genuine and authentic in its depiction of these um these this these high schoolers and uh their their issues and their struggles um the bully too like the main character he does have his his uh it's interesting because he is a very flawed character but you do end up sympathizing with him throughout and um the animation style is really gorgeous it takes place mostly in the spring and thus has that sort of pastel gauze to it um but it has um some interesting quirks too like uh the character the main character he th- when as he's being bullied tends to just kind of shuts himself off from the rest of his uh the world and sees everyone all his classmates with these big x's on their faces but as he starts to get closer to people again these x's start to peel away from their faces and that's a really interesting um uh element of animation that you don't really see in this typical sort of high school drama um so it's it's a really lovely film and uh it does get quite dark and um uh very uh, hard to watch at some points but i highly recommend it it's streaming on netflix now and that is a silent voice awesome what else have you been watching i've also been watching i started watching outlander so this is a show that i had never uh seen before cuz um it's on stars and i didn't have a subscription oh it's on stars yet yeah. and uh so i never um really got around to watching it but i saw that the first two seasons were released on netflix and my curiosity got the better of me my curiosity because this is a show that is quite famous for its steamy sex scenes <laughs> so i was curious to see if it would live up to that reputation and it's fine like honestly the sex scenes are pretty standard for a cable show um it i do appreciate that the show uh does leave stick by the female gaze more so than the male gaze despite being set in um 1700 Scottish Highlands um hold on i'm checking the the year because i'm not sure if that is correct <laughs> it is set yeah 1714 1743 Scotland uh so this is actually about a um is a time travel story uh so, well it's a historical drama/romance nestled within a time uh travel story. It follows this uh World War 2 nurse named Claire Randall who uh finds herself transported back to ni- 1743 Scotland and uh becomes involved in the Jacobite risings which is the um the uh Catholic uh sort of uprising against the Protestant 
uh, Christian kings of England. Um, and uh, it's actually quite fascinating how this show delves into the politics and into the history of the era. Um, but I will say it is quite melodramatic. And I will I would find myself just kind of toning out, zoning out at some points. But um, it's really well made. The cast is fantastic. Katriana Balfi and Jamie Fra uh, Sam Hugan as uh, the two main characters are really good. And um, the actor who plays um, her husband in the modern time and then a his ancestor, uh, Tobias Menzies, who you might recognize from Game of Thrones, he is also really good at playing these... Um, two very differing roles, the more kindly and neutral husband and then the sort of evil and very, um, uh, yes, yeah, I'll just say evil, uh, Jonathan Black Ran Blackjack Randall. So um, it's good. It's um, I wouldn't say it's uh, for everyone. I can kind of see why it's found the following that it has um, and not... I can see too why people like praise it so much for its sex scenes because consent is sexy and that's the sexiest part about the sex scenes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I will, I might check it out a little bit more. I, I have my reservations about it, but I have also um, barreled through the first 10 episodes. So I do think that it has its, um, it has its um, benefits. Yeah. It must be doing something right to get you to watch 10 episodes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, I have also been re-watching a couple episodes of Lost. So um, you might have heard of this podcast, A Storm of Spoilers. They were a big Game of Thrones po uh, recap podcast. And now that Game of Thrones is over, they have switched gears into becoming a Lost rewatch podcast. And Lost being one of my favorite shows, one that I love so much that I will defend the last season and the then the finale because it's about the characters and the journey. I <laughs> um, was really excited to um, watch Lo rewatch Lost with them. And um, this is kind of a plug for the future. I will be guessing on an episode of The Storm now um, in a couple days, in a few days. And so please look forward to that episode when it comes out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes. Uh, let's move into what we've been eating. Brad, what were you eating when you were out here in L.A.? Uh, whenever I hang out with Peter, we usually try to go someplace cool that's unique to Los Angeles. That's kind of just like my thing I like to do when I'm out there. And he recommended Slab, uh, which you guys have talked about before here on the podcast. Uh, it's a barbecue place, uh, and it was fantastic. It's definitely among some of the best barbecue that I have had. I had some of the, the brisket, and I tried the ribs, and they were really good. Um, definitely r ranks up there. I I've had some pretty great barbecue in my day, although I admit I haven't had Texas barbecue, uh, so I'm sure Jacob has plenty to, s to say about that. But uh, it was it was really really good. And they they also have uh, one of their sides was Frito pie, which is pretty simple because it's you know Fritos and chili and cheese. But the chili that they had, uh, I really liked the the spice and and the taste of it mixed with the the Fritos and cheese. So that was. Uh, that was a good experience for sure. Ben, didn't, didn't you go to Slab? I did, and that place rules. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it because, yeah, we, we my wife and I went and we had the, I think we split the Frito pie between us and we couldn't finish it, but that would be a really good thing, you know, for like, if you ever go, if you're ever in LA and you want barbecue, go to Slab and get that like for the table because I think it's, it's um 
yeah, that's a, it's, it's like a rare kind of uh, side, even at barbecue places, you know, to have something that good um, in that form. So, anyway. For sure, yeah. I, w- I will say it was a little bit pricier than I was anticipating, um, but but it is very good. So I guess it may- maybe it's worth it. <laughs> what else? Um, and then I had an uh, entirely different kind of barbecue. I had Korean barbecue for the first time. Uh, this place called Yummies in Utah that my girlfriend took me to. Um, if you've never had Korean barbecue before, it's the kind of place where they like bring you out your your meats and all these sides, and you cook them yourself on uh, like a like a, like a tabletop um, stove, basically, uh, where you like you cook the meat in in front of you, and you kind of piece it together and eat it the whichever way you want to with. Uh, you know, rice um, and a, a, like a whole like a bunch of different like small bowls of like different side dishes that you can um, pair pair with it. And it was extremely filling. And I I honestly don't remember the last time I was that full because it's it was just so much meat. Um, <laughs> like, like, uh, I mean, and it, we, in order to do what, like what you do there, like you do have to get the, the all you can eat, you know, option, but like, we didn't even get more than like, uh, one, uh, just, just one of the initial serving where you pick, like, I think it was like three or four different meats, but it was just so much food, but it was really, really good. I, I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It'll be a while before I get it again, simply because it was so filling. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that I tried it. <laughs> what else, Brad? And then uh, on the, the, the junk food side of things, there's a new flavor of Cheez-Its that are queso fundido Cheez-Its. Have you, you guys have had queso fundido before? No. What is that? So queso fundido is uh, it's a it's a Mexican kind of appetizer where they, they take uh, chorizo and cheese and kind of mix it together. It's um, served flambe. Uh, sometimes there's onions in it. It's kind of like a... A cheese fondue, but it's but it's basically in a skillet as opposed to being melted in like a pot or anything like that. Hmm. Um, usually, dip chips or tortillas in it. Uh, it's it's delicious. Um, chorizo is one of my favorite things, and mixing it with cheese makes it even better. And so they've taken the flavor of queso fundido and put it on cheeses, uh, and it's it's pretty good. It has just the right amount of spice uh, and and like the cheese taste to it. It's not the, the traditional cheese. It's uh, quote unquote cheese taste. Uh, so it does, uh, it's almost like, um, I guess kind of like a pepper jack maybe. Um, and the, the chorizo spice, uh, adds a little bit to it. So those, those are pretty good. And then, uh, there's these new, um, airheads that are called airhead stripes and kind of going with the, uh, the starburst like duos flavors and the, the other gummy, uh, two flavor combinations that I had talked about with other candies before, this is the same kind of thing with Airheads, where they have two different flavors in one uh, single mini bar of Airheads. Um, it has strawberry and watermelon, and then blue raspberry and cherry, and then what they call double mystery, which was weird to me because, from what I understand, the mystery flavor of Airheads is basically just the um, whatever is in the uh, the mixture when they change flavors. So that it tastes like a different flavor that you don't recognize, or two different flavors together. So this, but the mystery bar in this is, it's colored purple and orange, but I don't think think the flavors are orange and grape together. Um, but I can't be sure because I'm not entirely sure what the flavor is. So so I guess that's the double mystery. It's like, oh, these are the colors, but no, it's not those flavors. Figure it out. 
Um, so, and I just to be sure, I opened up like a couple, uh, like two or, th- or two or three of the the double mystery bars, and they're they're all colored blue and orange, because or I mean purple and orange. And I was thinking that maybe they all had different colors, but it's the same uh, color variations, but just uh, maybe different flavors. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> Well, if anybody who is listening to this podcast works in the Airheads factory, let us know what the the secret ingredients are and what the hell is going on there. Um, Jacob, you took a break from your diet when you visited Walt Disney World. Uh, Yes, I also want to point out that even though I uh, took my diet off for three days, I walked 30-something miles in three days, according to my phone, so I didn't gain any weight at Disney World. (laughs) Well, congratulations, because that seems like a major accomplishment in and of itself. Any sort of theme Uh, park, I mean, the the food is just outrageous. Yeah, so uh, Peter advised me not to binge because I could, and that was really good advice, so I only, you know, stuck to, you know, having whatever I wanted, but, you know, two meals a day and a snack, more or less, and... I don't intend to talk about food very much on our future theme park podcast. I'm going to spend a few minutes making some recommendations for people who are visiting Walt Disney World and want to have some uh, good food. I'll start with Skipper Canteen, which is an adventure land in Magic Kingdom Park. And if you've ever been on Jungle Cruise, this is a companion restaurant to that ride. It's relatively new. And the idea being that all the uh, skippers who uh, drive the Jungle Boat Cruises all come here to hang out between shifts. And it's themed as... Uh, being a place where people from around the world have brought artifacts and have brought you know different recipes and the all everything on the menu is a combination uh, and fusion of South American, African, Asian, Central American and I was very impressed. It was very I had very good service and as a solo diner I had a great time and you probably the most fun aspect of it I think I can imagine it's not working for some people is that in the same way the Jungle Cruise ride encourages the hosts to have a cheesy spiel and full of dumb uh, dad jokes. The service uh, here is allowed to also engage in telling real grown-worthy jokes as often as they care to, which really worked for me, but your, your mileage may vary. Uh, Cava del Tequila at Epcot in the Mexico Pavilion. This is a very, very small tequila bar located inside the, the, the giant pyramid where that houses uh, most of Mexico's uh, uh, goods for sale and restaurants. And once again, being solo helped because I was able to get in really easily because this place is always packed. But they staff this place with, like, real tequila experts. If you want, like, a really good margarita or a really good tequila shot or even some good chips and salsa, this is the place to go on Disney property to have, like, people who know tequila make you really good drinks with it. So uh, get there early, get a good seat, and prepare to hang out. Speaking of bars, uh, Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar at Disney Springs, which is the sort of mall dining and shopping area that's not part of Harbor Park but also on Disney property. Uh, a lot of people complained about this when it first opened because it's uh, very loosely Indiana Jones themed. People complained that it wasn't Indiana Jones themed enough. But that's why I love it because the theme here is that Jock Lindsay, who owns this bar on the waterfront, was Indiana Jones' pilot. He's a guy who was piloting a plane at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark who had the, who had the snake that scares Indiana Jones. So it's not an Indiana Jones themed bar. It is a bar themed after the guy who used to fly Indiana Jones around. <laughs> And that very specific theme uh, I, tickled me. I loved it. I sat down, prepared to like settle in for like three or four drinks because I wasn't driving. And my bartender realized I was from Austin and wanted to talk about live music and wouldn't stop talking to me. So I paid for one drink and left. I want to go back so I can actually enjoy it without the worst, world's worst bartender not reading the room that I did not want to talk about live music at the Indiana Jones oh, bar. That's unfortunate. But are, are uh, there like uh, photos of Indiana Jones around? Like what, what sort of indie theming yeah. is there? 
there's like a lot of old fashioned like like a lot of props like adventuring theme stuff old maps with like you know places circled and like lines drawn across them like photos of you know archaeological digs and all the the menu everything is named after um, a Indiana Jones reference like for example the cocktail I had which was a spicy red cocktail was called the Anything Goes after the you know, the song that plays over the opening credits of Temple of Doom hmm. and like and all the other um, red cocktails all had very specific names as well i don't think you ever see the name indiana jones anywhere but you but there's it's like full of little easter eggs like little touches make you feel like you are in a in a place owned by somebody who is part of his life that's cool which is just it is cool i want i want to go back and hopefully find a better bartender uh my big meal of that night also disney springs uh chef art smith's homecoming uh chef art smith he is uh very famous because he was oprah winfrey's private chef for 10 years and then he left up out on his own and if you've watched cooking shows you've seen him he's been a guest on top chef and all kinds of um uh shows like that over the years he's a very charming personality uh he's one, he's one, he's one of my favorite um my favorite types of human being which is um the incredibly gay southerner uh which is the com- combination of things you don't see off enough because the south sometimes tries to hide its gays but I, I, I love that he's a completely old school american self but also completely flamboyant and i love that and his food is delicious he cooks like the, the most old-fashioned you know, comfort food, fried chicken, biscuits, mashed potatoes, and it, nothing surprising here. Like, I, I didn't eat this and go, oh, wow, this is a reinvention of the wheel. But it is as good as Southern cooking as I have ever had. And it is really worth going every way. And this is not the only location. He has a bunch of restaurants around the country in the United States. So that's uh, Chef Art Smith's Homecoming. And finally, uh, Nomad Tavern at Disney's Animal Kingdom. This is located right outside of the World of Pandora section, the Avatar-themed area. And it is themed as a... A very simple uh, 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 lounge, kind of like the location of it isn't quite specified. It feels like it could be Asian, a little bit of African, a little bit of South American. And the menu reflects that. The menu is just a really, really amazing bar food. I had uh, truffle poutine, or poutine, I'm sorry, truffle poutine, fries, and really delicious gravy and truffle cheese, followed by the best churros I've ever had in my entire life, along with um, some extremely fruity, extremely strong drinks. And this is my new favorite place at Disney World. I, I slept there for about an hour and a half, just enjoying the small space, enjoying good service, enjoying a really strong menu of food and alcohol. So if you go to Disney World solo like I did, uh, you can get into a lot of places that usually have longer waits or reservations. So and, and most of the time, the servers are trained well enough to know that you want to sit there and relax and not talk about Austin live music. So that was my, what I ate and drank at Disney World. It sounds like you had a, a mostly enjoyable experience with the food. There. I had a mostly amazing time. I, I had a great time eating and um, at the parks. But uh, I just want to say that when you have three days of amazing service, when you encounter that one lousy bartender, it makes you very much aware of what a skill the service industry is. People always like look down their ways, look down people who are serving them. But being a good server at a restaurant is such a balancing act of being able to read a table, read their needs, you know, anticipate their needs, how much they want to talk, how little they want to talk. And the people who worked at Disney, for the most part, like had down to a science. They, they understood what I needed, how much I wanted to talk, um, what, what I would want, how much time I needed within minutes. And I was really, really impressed. That's awesome. All right, so let's do our last, uh, our last topic here, which is what we've been playing. Brad, you're the only one with an entry in this topic. So what have you been playing recently? Uh, while I was visiting Peter, I got to try out the Oculus Quest that he talked about recently uh, on an episode of The Water Cooler a while back. 
Uh, if you haven't heard, the Oculus Quest is the wireless VR headset that you can now buy. It's uh, about $400, costs as much as uh, an entire video game console, uh, but it allows you to use VR in a way that's much more freeing because the controllers and the headset don't have to be plugged into anything, which is awesome. Uh, and I got to try out uh, two of the games you talked about, which were uh, Beat Saber and Super Hot. Uh, Beat Saber, I was already familiar with because I, uh, a friend of mine had shown me some videos of people doing uh, insanely difficult songs with this game. Uh, and if you've never heard of this game, it's like Guitar Hero in theory, but instead of strumming buttons and hitting the color-coordinated uh, buttons on the frets of a fake guitar, you have the two VR controls in your hands, and you have what are basically lightsabers in your hands in the VR environment, and you're slicing these cubes uh, to the rhythm of like some EDM song, but you have to slice them in the direction of the arrow that's in indicated on the cubes as they come flying towards you. And so you're like you're hitting the the, the cubes, and that's essentially what makes the drum beats of the song. Uh, and it's that's varying levels of difficulty uh, as and it gets harder to uh, hit them and be, be coordinated enough to do it. Uh, as you you increase the difficulty, obviously, and it's uh, it's really fun, and it's it's like Peter had said, it's a pretty good workout too. Uh, I tried out the hard one after uh, getting used to it in easy, and I did fairly well. But it is uh, you definitely have to kind of catch your breath afterwards, and I felt a little bit sweaty because you're you can't help but move around like in rhythm as it's going, because kind of help you get in sync with the, what's coming at you. And you're constantly like sw swinging your arms back and forth, so it's it's a pretty good uh, way to work out if you're looking for somewhere uh, a way fun, to, you know, other than just going for a run and hopping on a treadmill or, or anything like that. And so I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, and it's it's making me consider potentially uh, get one, especially because I looked up how you can um, there's like a way that you can hack the game so that you can do add custom songs that other people have created because there's I think there's only like ten or fifteen basic songs that are part of the game itself but a lot of people have taken songs that everyone's familiar with and adapted them to the game so that you can play that way hmm. so that might be something i do in the future cool and then i also played super hot on the oculus quest uh, which we talked about before and this game is so fun and frustrating and difficult because you you are moving in slow motion until your character moves like like or the environment around you doesn't move unless you move and so when you, the part that i started this game at is it was after peter had already played it so it was kind of in the middle of a level where the game had already gotten more difficult but basically i was stand i'm standing in the middle of this room and there's a knife in front of me and as soon as i grab it the the red bad guys appear and then if i want to move to like stab the one in front of me there's two guys standing behind that one with guns ready to shoot me and so if I want to move to stab that person, then I suddenly have to dodge bullets that are being shot at me. And so, like, you have to pause and calculate what you're going to do next and how you're going to do it so that you can kill the people with guns without being shot. So, like, you have to grab... Uh, you can you can throw the knife at the person and then they drop their gun and you can reach for their gun and shoot. Or you can grab a hammer that's on a table next to you. It is... it's. It requires a lot of thinking and like uh, quick movements and while and like it's just a series of you know uh, 
proper, you know, tech, like moves to just kind of get this, get through this level. But it, it's frustrating in a very fun way. And I had a real problem figuring out the throwing mechanics for the knife because every time I was throwing it, I kept throwing it like down toward the ground and never at the person in front of me, no matter, <laughs> no matter, no matter how I threw it. So it got to the point where it was happening so often that I just kept like getting killed, immediately resetting, and then very quickly grabbing the knife and going through the motions. And it's it starts to feel cool once you know what, the pattern of what's going to happen mm-hmm. because you can start doing things in rapid succession succession very quickly because you know exactly what's going to happen. I was going to ask uh, if it if it reset you if you died. Are you is there like does it take you really far back or is it basically just sort of like give you another opportunity you know to to just retry that that same series of moves again is it really easy to sort of jump right back into it if you get killed from what i can tell i, I think it takes you back to the beginning of whatever level you last uh, whatever level you started at before mm. um because it kept taking taking me back to the same point um and i i could never i got to the like the next part of this level but didn't complete the level and so then when i got killed i immediately went back to the beginning where I had to grab the knife and start all over again. So mm-hmm. it's hard to gauge since, like I said, Peter had already progressed through the game a little bit and you can't uh, use the menu to go back and pick where you want to start until you finish the game, apparently. Um, but it was it was, it was was really fun. It's It really gave me an idea of just like, kind of how cool VR can be. Um, and I'm very interested to see like kind of what else they can do with it because it was, it was a lot of fun. Cool. So that's super hot. That is on the Oculus Quest. And I think that is going to bring us to the end of today's edition of Slash Film Daily. So uh, the podcast, you can find it published on SlashFilm.com every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And uh, if you want to, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, anything like that to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And if you do that, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. Please just take like two minutes and do it. It really helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word about the show any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Hey, Ben. Oh, Jacob. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. I always forget when I host the water cooler, I always forget that this part is coming. Yeah, I mean, do you think Louis A. Safian's gargantuan book of insult, offense, and funnery stops just because Peter's not here? Do you really think that? I, I hope and dream that, Jacob, but it is not to be. Well, you're in no danger of being kidnapped. You haven't a friend who'd be contacted for ransom arrangements. That's just really sad. That's a harshness, yeah. <laughs> well, H.T., She's nasty, repulsive, repugnant, disagreeable, offensive, belligerent, pugnacious, and antagonistic. And those are her good points. Wow. Hey. <laughs> what a laundry well, list. Brad, a number of her acquaintances, or Brad, a number of his acquaintances have named their first ulcers after him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and Chris, bees are too much, bees are much too busy for birth control which makes it understandable why there's so many sons of bees like him around. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Jacob, no. Oh, Peter's not here, so i, I got to find one for him. Um, all right. <laughs> His girlfriend demanded a refund on the perfume she had purchased because all it attracted was him. <laughs> all right, well, there, there's a, a train coming by to take me away, and I'm just going <laughs> to leap in front of it after those jokes. So I will, uh, I will talk to you guys later on.